A new year is a new chance to focus on you. You're probably already picturing yourself struggling at the gym, but not all self-help has to mean suffering. Squeeze.com is making it easier than ever to elevate your wellness by delivering a juice cleanse right to your doorstep. It's the easiest juice cleanse you'll ever do that may aid in weight loss, eliminating bloating, clearing your skin, boosting your energy levels, improving sleep, and breaking bad eating habits. Meet all your health goals from the comfort of your home. Get free same-day local delivery or fast free delivery nationwide with code WONDERY today at squeezed.com. When you transcend, you pass through deeper levels of mind and then deeper levels of intellect. And at the border of intellect, Hmm. non-relative absolute. You leave the field of relativity and you experience atma, meaning the self, the self of all that is. You experience that. Hi, everyone. It's Raghu, and I am pleased to have with me today David Lynch. David, welcome to the podcast. Good to be here, Raghu. And, uh, of course, I'm going to assume many, many of you who are listening or watching know who David is. He's done uh, some incredible films. Uh, but the beauty is uh, that I found out, at, and I'm, and we're looking, David's in his, his wood shop right now, a sculptor, photographer, painter, musician, and uh, not the least is this incredible uh, foundation David started for consciousness-based education and world peace and getting meditation situated for children in schools, which we will get into. But, um, of course, I these films that you've done from Eraserhead to Elephant Man to Dune and, and Mulholland Drive, Wild, I mean, I've seen most of them without knowing anything, if you know what I mean. Uh, but Blue Velvet uh, was, of course, uh, I think, high on the list of, oh, my God. Uh, talk about emotionally um, astounding in, in what you pulled out of it through that film. But, uh, David, can you... I just want to hear from you, say that the your, more your earlier life, what were the transformative markers? I always ask people that I've never met before, what are the things that really made a huge change in their lives in that they started to realize, wait, one could be happy in this life? Just the most basic, simple thing. I am not my mind, my thoughts, my emotions, and so on. What, uh, what can you say about how that happened for you? Well, there's, you know, um, I always say that um, fate uh, plays a huge part in our life. And um, so there's been many things that have come along in my life that, you know, things might have been one way and then this happens and they're a completely different way. Hmm. So, um, but the thing about happiness you mentioned is... Um, I heard a phrase, I've said this story many times. I heard a phrase, true happiness is not out there. True happiness lies within. And this phrase had a ring of truth to it for me. But 
The phrase doesn't say where the within is, nor does it tell you how to get there. So this phrase would drive me kind of crazy. I wondered, what is the within? Where is the within? And, and if you could if you know that, how would you get to the within to find this true happiness? Yeah. You know what happened for me, uh, and we're in a similar age range. Uh, I was at a friend's house, and I saw a picture of this Indian saint named Mayor Baba, who I had no idea about. He was, and he was pretty well known, I think. And under the picture, it said, don't worry, be happy. And I thought, yeah, I don't want to worry. I want to be happy. And it was something that triggered me to at least, I mean, I had been interested in Eastern philosophy and so on and so forth, but this really triggered me. And, and the funny thing is when I met Ramdas uh, later, actually, not much later, within a few years of that moment, I found out that that was his first initial hit of Eastern, uh, the profoundness that's, that's available through Eastern um, practices and philosophy was Mayor Baba as, Baba as well. So uh, I was in good company there. Um, so how, uh, so stuff started to evolve for you, obviously, uh, I mean, through your teenage years, where did, where did you grow up, David? Well, I grew up in different places, but mostly in the Northwest. Oh, really? And was born in Montana, and then I lived in Sandpoint, Idaho, Spokane, Washington, Boise, Idaho, and one year in Durham, North Carolina. Oh, really? And then I went to school, high school in Alexandria, Virginia. Wow. That must have been a little bit... Uh, Interesting and somewhat difficult to be moving like that when you're a kid. I didn't see it as, as um, that's why I say fate, you know, plays this role. Mm. It was so necessary to have these different experiences. See, looking back, it was really beautiful. And um, I just happened to, I happened to, you know, be able to make friends I just find friends or whatever. So I didn't ever suffer going to a new place. I didn't suffer for too long. Mm. When we moved from Boise, Idaho to Virginia, uh, the first year there was pretty dark. And um, I, was, I, I, I didn't like it. Uh, but uh, and then I came out of that. Mm. And I'm sure all of it informed your filmmaking. And, and I, I think I heard you say once uh, you got into it because you wanted to see how pictures move. Have I got that right? Yeah, exactly. So uh, that's another story I've told a million times. Okay, I'm well, no one here has heard it, so go ahead. <laughs> okay, great. Um, Maybe. I was at the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and I painted in a in a house that me and my friend Jack rented, but also in a cubicle in a big studio space in the building in the in the academy. And and the, I, different people, we had our little places kind of 
uh, cordoned off. So I was in my little space in this big room and I was working. It was like around 10 o'clock at night. I was working on a painting of a garden at night, mostly black with this green kind of coming out of the darkness, the black. Hmm. And I sat back to look at this thing and suddenly from the painting came a wind and the green began to move. And I said, oh, a moving painting. That experience led to cinema. Hmm. That's amazing. Yeah. Really? Wow. So what was then the bridge? That was the bridge, but what was the practical aspects of The practical aspect was uh, there was a thing at the end of each school year there at the Academy, experimental painting and sculpture contest. So students would do a special painting or some big project, something a little bit out of the ordinary for this contest. And I rented a 16 millimeter camera that had single frame capabilities, knowing zip about really? anything about, you know, a camera or, the, or film. And I rented this because it was the cheapest one. I asked around in different places, the cheapest 16 millimeter camera I could find. And I asked these guys at where I rented it about lighting and they said, well, just set this up this way and just do this. Yeah. Anyway, I set this up and mm. I stop motion animated uh, one minute thing that would be played as a loop. And then I built a sculptured screen. The screen was mostly flat, but it had cast three-dimensional heads coming out that I wanted it to sort of distort the film where it hit the, the, the bumps in the screen. And anyway, and then accompanied by a sound of a siren, six men getting sick is the, is the one-minute loop of this film. And I came in first. I got first prize, shared it with a guy named Noel Mahaffey, who had a you know beautiful painting and in it in the show, and these students were so great to me, they allowed the lights to be turned off 15 minutes of every hour so people could see my my piece, hmm. and um, it was in a great room and had a little stage and I had the thing hanging the sculpture screen hanging from wires, and they had a 16 millimeter projector and I had built an erector set kind of thing. So the film went up to this high ceiling and back down in <laughs> over and over and over. Oh. And uh, anyway, that was my my thing that it led to. A man saw this thing because it cost me $200 to make the screen and do the film. A man saw this and said, oh, would you build one for my house, for my home? And, and I was going to give up because it was way too expensive. $200 was like too billion to me then <laughs> so i said whoa and he gave me money a thousand dollars to build one for his home but anyway things happened and um there was some anyway that started the whole thing going how did i i'm assuming you ended up somehow in hollywood if not in hollywood but having to go through hollywood that's another part of the fate Hmm. I, based on these, you know, moving paintings moved to animation and live action. 
And one of those and a script got me an independent filmmakers grant from the American Film Institute. Hmm. That film got me accepted to the Center for Advanced Film Studies in Los Angeles, California, AFI, American Film Institute Center for Advanced Film Studies. Hmm. So I came out to LA in 1970 um, and, you know, that led to, you know, making my first feature, which was Eraserhead. And that strangely led to Mel Brooks hiring me for The Elephant Man. So, oh, God, yeah, I don't again, remember that. These things, you can't, you can't figure them. They don't make really any sense at all, but they happened. Hmm. That was with uh, Elephant Man. John Hurt, was that the? John Hurt. Yeah. I haven't thought of that in so I mean, okay, you got to tell, I love Mel Brooks as well. How was that, working with him? Mel is an incredible human being. Really? He does these comedies, so obviously he's got a great sense of humor. But he's very, very smart and well-read and deep thinker. Hmm. And so... I don't know how we sort of clicked, but he really, I did not have final cut in the, in the contract, mm -hmm. but he supported me so much. I am, will be eternally grateful to Mel Brooks really treated me so well. And uh, so it was, a real pleasure working with Mel on that Elephant Man. And uh, he really gave me, you know, a huge break. Huge. Mm. Wow. Hey, you were a young man then. I, yeah, I wasn't that young. 30s? It took a long time to make a racer head. Oh, really? Yeah, it took five years, really, maybe oh. a little bit more. And so I didn't. I didn't go shoot the Elephant Man until '79. I came out to the center uh, in '70. So nine years went by before I got, you know, to go to work on the Elephant Man. It, it mm. came out into the world in 1980. So really, kind of ten years um, in, you know. And I saw. I thought the whole world was passing me by. It took so long on a racer head because we kept running out of money. So. Um, Anyway, uh, it's all, you know, the way it's supposed to be, I guess. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, the other day I was watching a show that's come out recently with uh, Rick Rubin and Paul McCartney. Just Paul talking about his stuff, his life, his life with the Beatles. And, and it was very... Uh, in some ways, uh, technical, and you have to be into sound, which I, I had, uh, I've been involved in music off and on for a long time, but had a label in LA. And so production and so on, it's of course fascinating for me. And I mean, I couldn't believe just how incredible Paul really is and, and, and was in that whole scene back in the day. But then Rick said, so, Paul, you went over with the Beatles to Rishikesh and met 
uh, Maharishi, Mahesh Yogi, and you all were involved with Transcendental Meditation, and he very fondly talked about that, and I knew I was going to be talking to him. It struck me, oh, you know, of course, I don't know, there were... I don't know how many of, there weren't many of us who had not experienced a TM back in the day at that time, because the, the main things that, that were sort of public were uh, the Hare Krishna movement. And everywhere you'd go on the, on the corner, they would be chanting Hare Krishna. And for me at the time, there was two things going on. One was going over to the Hare Krishna Center and eating the, the uh, food that they had, they call prasad, and Sunday morning, that was phenomenal. In any city, it was all great food. It was incredible the way they did that. And the other was TM, which I got initiated into. And, oh, God, talk about dating, uh, 69, I would believe. Wow. And Yeah. And that was my first experience with meditation. So, yeah, let's talk about how did you, how did you get involved with uh, TM, and at, at what point in your life, and was it during the time that we were making these incredible films? Okay, so um, I was in Philadelphia, and when I heard the Beatles were, you know, over in Rishikesh, I didn't know the name Rishikesh. I just heard the Beatles were meditating. And as I've said a million times, I had zero interest in meditation. I heard about it, zero interest. And I said, fine for them to do whatever they want to do. I just hope they keep making music. <laughs> and um, so it didn't move my, the needle for me one little bit. Really. And then um, my first wife's father gave me a book. Now, he was not, you know, what you'd call a spiritual fellow. But he was, he read, he, in fact, he was a Philadelphia lawyer. He read in words. I mean, not read in words. He dreamt in words. He didn't dream in images. He dreamt really? in images of words. I never he heard of that. He read his dreams. Wow. And, and it was, and he was reading all the time, many, many, many different things. One day he gives me this book and it was um, Zen Buddhism, something else and something else. And he gave me, he says, I, you know, maybe you would like this. Okay. So I read this book. And it, it is, it, the book, I tell you, it seemed kind of um, obvious. I don't know. What it was. Just, <laughs> like that. Yeah. And so I, then he would like to take these walks in the woods. And there's a Wissahickon woods in Philadelphia. So he said, David, come and we'll walk. And we walked in this woods. And he said, David, he said, you know, in the book, it says that life is like a, a mirage in some ways. He said, do you understand that? I said, yeah, I, I do. And he looked at me, and then we continued, you know, walking. And I'm not sure when it started, but I always say that there's got to be a point in all of our lives when something happens and we become a seeker. Something happened to me 
just about the time I moved to Los Angeles, could have been triggered by that book. I don't know. But I couldn't get enough knowledge of all different kinds of, you know, philosophies or spiritual things, meditations. I kept, and I, and my first wife, Peggy, she had a friend, Amanda, who really knew a lot of things. And I would grab her and ask her so many questions and I couldn't get enough. And I looked into this kind of meditation. I looked into that kind. I looked into this. I read about this. I read about that. And I, I just was like, and one day my sister calls and she said, oh, I started Transcendental Meditation. And I asked her about it and I liked what she told me based on what I knew about other things. Then I heard a change in her voice, more self-assuredness, more happiness. I said, I, that's what I want. And I went and got it. And I've not looked back. I, I just, I meditate twice a day, almost now 49 years. This was 1973 when I started. Mm. Wow. Yeah. And I, I read somewhere where you said that, uh, you felt a change in your sister. That must have been profoundly affecting. Yes. I, I, you know, if she had said one thing or another, maybe I wouldn't have clicked, but I heard it in her voice. Mm. And that maybe was the main. Th and then I, I said right away, I was in, I was, um, the, the, the Center for Advanced Film Studies was housed in the Greystone Mansion in the best part of Beverly Hills. And I had taken over the stables and the maid's quarters. I had a mini studio. And I was in what we called the food room down there. And when I talked to my sister, and immediately I said to Catherine, my friend, who we later became the log lady in Twin Peaks, I said, <laughs> you want to start meditating with me? And she said, yes. And I said, okay, call and find out where we go. Where, where do we go? And so she got in touch with the uh, SRM Center, Spiritual Regeneration Movement. It's a movement Maharishi started, he named, he named it, in, in India. And that was because I was like you. I would see the faces of the holy men of India, you know, the masters, the gurus. And I said, there's something about those faces they know something I don't know. And it's just, you could get lost looking at them and wondering. Mm. And so, um, I forgot my train of thought there. What was I, you know. Around, around your, uh, initiated by your sister and realizing the power yeah, of, yeah. of the so, actuality. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So the spiritual regeneration movement was... I felt the perfect place for me because um, I felt the, a, the, the ageless part of this teaching coming through, that it wasn't kind of new wave mumbo-jumbo baloney. This was the real thing. Maharishi didn't make up this technique. It's an ancient technique. It works if you're a human being, no matter what. And, you know, you will transcend and every, you know, like always, we judge these things as we go along. We hear about this thing and we hear about this. We look into that. We look into this. And we have this sense 
this intuition that says, oh, that's not right. That, oh, that, that, that is pretty good. That's that, you know, like this. We're judging. Mm-hmm. And I've heard so many things through the years that, you know, if you hear one thing, you know, you could say, okay, I'm going to stop meditating with TM. I'm going to go to this thing. I never heard it. Never heard it. And more I hear, the more it supports the truth of what Maharishi brought. That brain research shows that they can see when a person truly transcends. The brain, you know, reacts a certain way. You get this total coherence going where the whole, and we heard growing up, we only use five or 10% of our brain. What is the other 90% for? Now you start seeing when you transcend, the whole brain becomes engaged and it's all kind of working together. As they say, if a conductor went up in front of the brain, raised the baton and all the instruments now start getting ready to play the same powerful thing. Mm. And so it's the key to me is transcending. So many techniques keep you on the surface. If you have a, um, a, a technique that's concentration, you might as well be concentrating on a math project, they say, or a painting or whatever. It's the same thing. It'll keep you on the surface. Contemplation. So many meditations out there right now where people contemplate something and there's no transcending. So I say, if you like concentrating, beautiful. If you like contemplating, smelling the roses as you go, appreciating all this and contemplating, watching your breath in and out, in and out, beautiful. Add TM to it. Add TM to whatever you love. (laughs) Did you end up meeting Maharishi? I met Maharishi, yes. Here or in India, did you? Well, the first time I met him was here at the SRM Center on Santa Monica. Hmm. And then I, 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 you know, I never talked publicly about, you know, meditation. I have, somebody asked me, you know, David, what are you doing? You know, like when we're shooting, I meditate during lunch. I meditate before I go to work and then I meditate at lunch. He said, what are you doing in that trailer? You know, you're not eating with everybody, you know, like this. I said, you know, meditating. And they say, oh, what's that? Or I'll say, just walk away. If somebody asks me about stuff, I tell them. But if you tell the journalists in those years you are doing meditation, they'll see your <laughs> film in the, eye, in the lens of meditation. It's an idiot. But anyway, um, <laughs> it's like if they, I would tell them if they asked me, I guess. But I heard Maharishi talk about peace creating techniques. And I said, oh, the world has got to hear about this. We can have peace. We've got to get going on this right away. And I started talking about it. And it goes in one ear and out the other. They don't want to know. It's bullshit. They say this could never happen. People sitting in India in a group and they think that's going to bring peace? Baloney. (laughs) But it's the thing that's going to do it. And one day the penny's going to drop and people are going to say, oh, yeah, holy smokes, where were we? We we should have been doing this. Hmm. 
So when we talk about, and you just mentioned it more than once, uh, transcending the power of meditation. So we have to talk about what are we transcending, and you have talked about it, uh, I have noticed. Um, obviously, there's a lot of negativity in this world, and right now it's a, there's a powerful expression of it in so many different ways through the environment, through war, through polarization in, in this country particularly. And um, so that negativity, is that not the first things that, that we put on the table in terms of, of transcending? And we're talking about, it in my mind, that's with what is within us. It's like, uh, I like the example of your sister, actually, uh, in terms of telling you, I've been doing this for a while, and you heard in her voice the, that she obviously, there had been some transcendence. Maybe she was less reactive. Maybe she was just more spacious and wide open, whatever it may have been. And I, I just think that that... Uh, Ram Dass used to talk about this. We got to fix, fix our hearts before we can think we're going to be able to f help anyone in this world. And so fixing our hearts and then rating it. Your sister seems to me, radiated something that you caught. Of course, you knew her incredibly well, but you caught that thing. So, yeah, let's talk about uh, a little bit of what are, are those um, phenomena that, that do get transcended. Okay, that's just so great. Now, I always say the human beings like a light bulb. We, you know, can, you know, we radiate out what's inside. So if you're filled with anger and stress and hate, you'll radiate that out. And like they say, the people don't like to sit down next to somebody who's filled with anger and, and you know, negativity. And on the other hand, if you're filled with happiness and love, you know, you radiate that out. People like, to, like that and they feel good around you. It's just the way it is. So... When you, when you transcend the way I'm, you know, know the term, you, you, you pass through deeper levels of mind and then deeper levels of intellect. And at the border of intellect, you experience you know, what the quantum phys physicists call the unified field, hmm. non-relative absolute. You leave the field of relativity and you experience non-relative absolute. Ocean of pure consciousness, ocean of being, atma, meaning the self, the self of all that is. You experience that. That in itself is a gigantic blessing because you can't get there from imagination. You can't get there from wishing. You are, you can't, you need a technique to allow yourself to get through this field of relativity and open the door to the big treasury. Boom. Whoa. You're there. Every time a human being transcends, they infuse some of that consciousness. Now, that consciousness within 
is unbounded intelligence. That's not just a little bit of intelligence. That's infinite, unbounded intelligence. It's unbounded creativity, unbounded happiness, unbounded love, unbounded energy, unbounded peace within every human being. At the base of all matter and mind is this field. It's always been there. It's an eternal field. No one ever created it. It's called Nitya Parashaya, uncreated, eternal. It's always been. It's eternal. <laughs> it's incredible. We can't even hardly understand that. It always is the same. It is always full. It is our big friend. We want to experience that. Now, what happens? You, you transcend and you experience this. Now you start to infuse this. Every time you transcend, whatever size of ball of consciousness you had to begin with, now it starts to expand more and more and more. You're starting to make the subconscious conscious. Enlightenment is full consciousness. The same as the, you know, the field, unbounded, infinite. You're enlightened. Now, when you start expanding more and more consciousness, you start expanding those all positive qualities. When you start expanding those all positive qualities, the side effect is negativity starts to recede. So if you had stresses, hates and angers and depressions and sorrows in there, hiding in there, all is in there, it starts to release, starts to recede. So I always say it's like bringing in the gold and saying goodbye to garbage. If you want to change your the, the stuff, if you want to see a big change, start transcending every day. It's not imagining. It's not playing, trying to be good. My friend Charlie Luce, you can say, you can be good for maybe one or two weeks. <laughs> it's going to fall apart. You got to be real. You got to be yourself. Hmm. You want to clean the machine. You bring in the gold, say goodbye to garbage by transcending, transcending every day, transcending every day. It's an old, age-old story. This is the way it's done. And, and people have got to start transcending. And, and it's going to, the, the forest will get green when all the trees are green. But in, in this knowledge that Maharishi brought out, not everyone has to meditate for there to be a change, be a, be a change for peace. Because these groups are powerfully re enlivening this field so much that they can affect collective consciousness. So a peace greeting group can enliven this field, non-relative, absolute, ocean of peace, ocean of unity, open, ocean of you know love and happiness and bring it up, affect collective consciousness in the world and people start feeling better. They start getting this happiness as if they were meditating. They start not wanting to kill each other. <laughs> they start wanting to help. It's so, it could be so beautiful, hmm. Raghu, so beautiful. Hmm. We gotta get this going. We've gotta all work together. And, and you know, like they say, give peace a try, <laughs> give peace a chance. Yeah. I just want to bring up something, David, in relation to the power of what you just related, the transcendent power, basically. 
I a lot of what I do on this podcast is talk to people from all sorts of different fields, uh, teachers and philosophers, thought leaders, all of it. And I always want to engage them in bringing in whatever it is they had to have to offer into a practical day-to-day level of us dealing with our lives. And so uh, one of the, uh, I have a good friend named Krishna Das, who's one of the big chant guys in this country. And he was with Ram Das and myself when Ram Das went back to India the second time to meet Neem Karoli Bob. I don't know if, if you've read Be Here Now or know that story. Um, so um, I, he came up with a great thing. Very simple. You wake up in the morning and it's the movie of me. It's you're the director, the producer, the protagonist, you're the writer, you're you're the you're the photographer, you're everything, and you got it going twenty-four-seven. You're on automatic because we go through we get our name and then suddenly we're a separate entity. And then that continues through all sorts of habitual patterns and neurotic tendencies, and that's what we are dealing with in terms of transcendence. And Ramdas talked a lot about it uh, over his life in terms of being attached to the roles and um, to the becoming somebody to the point where we lose, we, we remain this separate entity rather than part of a whole. We're drops in the ocean, we're part of the ocean. So uh, yet this, so I've been working on this thing with a good friend of mine, uh, from the movie of me to the movie of us, and that transformation and so on. What have you found in your own life through doing this practice? And I know what you, in, in a, and I'm trying to get at a practical way um, to express the benefits. And especially in relation, just the day-to-day life, you're on a set and somebody comes over to give you a cup of coffee and accidentally spills hot coffee on your beautiful white suit, if you were wearing one. And what's the, what is the, the gap between I, screaming and reacting and not? Those kinds of things, that, that's of great interest to me because it's not, to me, the, the basic qualities which you spoke of in terms of transcendence and moving into below all of the mental BS that we do on a day-to-day basis is staggeringly important and real. But it's also, do we become kinder, more compassionate, and more loving? That has, to me, uh, is as important. Absolutely. And it stands to reason that's got to be the end result um, that along the way we become compassionate, we become loving, we become, you know, uh, the way you'd want to be, you know, meet people, you'd want to meet people that are that way. You become the way that you would like others to be toward you, the golden rule kind of thing. Yeah. And so, but it can't be just on an intellectual thing, you know. Exactly. It has to be real, and so the test is 
First of all, I don't think gaining enlightenment is something that happens overnight. That's for sure. <laughs> it's, it's a big deal to go from wherever we are in this troubled world. You know, we all deserve to be here. It's the Kali Yuga. It's a dark time. And, you know, we're, there's a lot of shenanigans going on that are not good. And a lot of hate and a lot of bad behavior. And so I'm convinced, though, Raghu, that if you uh, take somebody who's filled with anger and hate and need for revenge and you teach them transcendental meditation as taught by Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, that will ease up almost right away. In other words, they won't start, they won't kill anybody. Uh, they might be very, very angry and they might beat somebody badly. They might even stab them, but they won't shoot them. They won't kill them. Then they start meditating a little bit more and more. They won't ever stab them. They won't, and pretty soon they won't hit them even. They might yell at them. And then they meditate a little bit more, a little bit more, and they might think, I'd like to kill that person, but they don't even say it. And they meditate a little bit more, a little bit more, and pretty soon they got their arm around the person. Nobody bothers them. No one gets them upset. You know, that's, that's, you know, it's, it's it, the more happiness. I, was, I give an example. If you are sitting with, say, with your, your girlfriend and you're madly in love, you're in a car driving and you're on your way to a great dinner, you just, you know, you're just absolutely in love. And you're so happy driving together. And some car cuts you off. Do you care? Not one little bit. You laugh about it. Whoa, that was close. Laugh, laugh. Off we go. No problem. If you're filled with stress, you've broken up with your girlfriend, and it's, you know, you didn't sleep well, and you're driving down the road. Somebody cuts you off. <laughs> We've got road rage. You're going to kill the motherfucker, you know, and this is the way it is. And, you know, so the more happiness you have, true happiness is not out there. True happiness lies within. You want that happiness within? Learn how to transcend. That's like learning how to open up the safe that the, at the bank, the big vault, so you can bring out the gold. That's what you need. That's where the happiness is. The within is in that, you know, non-relative absolute at the base of matter and mind, and we can experience it and go there and get it. This is such a blessing for humanity. And then without mood making, you will start being friendlier to people. You will start not, not reacting to want to kill somebody automatically and if it's not automatic you just keep meditating one day it will be but you can't judge a new meditator might go out and kill somebody you know <laughs> you know what i mean it's not gonna happen overnight yeah oh i want to say about road rage okay because you i don't think there's any one of us who have driven who has not reacted to being cut off. Now, the highest ideal, you just uh, said the reality is, oh, wow, that was a close call. That's, that's a, but, and the lowest is screaming epithets. Uh, 
but there's a middle thing that and and so there's a to me there's a a process that happens over time just like you're talking about enlightenment it does not happen uh like that that no, is not the reality and and i I won't even go into the reality of what it is because it's not useful. What's useful is through practice, meditative practice, maybe you're not going to say, gee, that was a close call, but maybe you'll, you'll, you will go, you, and go, yeah, I'm human. You know, a little bit of compassion for oneself in that moment is to me tremendous progress. Um, I want to, um, you talk about one th- another thing about meditation, which you mentioned. Uh, let me quote you. I mean, hopefully it's, it's correct. Uh, I want to emphasize, you said, that meditation is not a selfish thing. Even though you're diving in and experiencing the self, you're not closing yourself off from the world. I love that, David. You're strengthening yourself so you can be more effective when you go back into the world. It's selfless, not selfish. Yeah, exactly. That's beautiful. Yeah. And you, yeah, okay, good. <laughs> I didn't pick that out of nowhere. Uh, and uh, I think, be, you know, we're, we're reaching a point here where I want to be very emphatic about the work that the foundation is doing because I, I can't tell you how much I'm 100% uh, in belief of, of the mission here which is to get meditation in school. So please, just tell us a little bit about what you're trying to do here, what you have been doing for quite some time. Okay, Maharishi always said how important uh, education is. Hmm. And when you stop and think about it, it's, uh, you know, anybody would say, yes, education is extremely important. And so, but people have a different idea, uh, different ideas about what, education is and so you know my, I, 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 did, I wouldn't have anything to talk about if it wasn't for Maharishi and the things I've learned from him so um, there's, the, there's the knower they say the knower the process of knowing and the known it's like the subject object and, and the relationship between the two hmm. In most education, there's the 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 knower, the student, the student learns about the object. They learn about all these things. Basically, basically, it's memorizing these things so they pass a test. And um, but nothing is really being done for the knower, the student. The student stays the same you know, in, in the capacity of understanding and focusing and, and uh, comprehending and, you know, the, and, and the amount of happiness in the student or whatever stays pretty much the same. So consciousness-based education is the curriculum stays pretty much the, the same, but you give this person, the student, a technique so they can transcend every day. And, and, and what happens is, from the schools that have this, Johnny, he, he starts to be able to focus. He starts getting happier. 
He starts getting more creative. He starts getting along with his fellow students better. He starts to actually like his teacher. <laughs> the fighting in the school stops. Artwork comes up more in the hallways, on the walls, even if they don't have an art department or a music department because they weren't funded. It starts to get a being a happy school, a blissful school. And, and it happens so naturally because they're bringing up the happiness from within. They're bringing up the creativity. They're bringing up the intelligence. They're bringing up the energy. They're bringing up the inner peace. And, and it changes everything for the good. This is consciousness-based education. Now, you know, so many people are suffering from not only stress, but traumatic stress. And, you know, then this stress causes us human beings to do sometimes strange and very bad things. Imagine getting rid of this stress. And, and the person, you know, it's like getting rid of a, of a giant sore that's just killing them and, and healing it and getting them back on the road. And all this domestic violence and wars and suffering and poverty and, you know, uh, road rage and air rage, flying rage, yeah. all this stuff is just going to go away. And it can go away. The secret always has been within, 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 within. The big within. They've talked about it throughout time. Here's a technique to get you there, infuse that and grow in that and enjoy life. Walk away from suffering. And so that's consciousness-based education. It's real simple, but it changes everything for the good. People are against it because they say it's a religion. It's not having anything to do with religion. You do not have to believe in TM and it'll still work. You don't have to believe in it and it will still work. You get an x-ray done at the doctor office, doctor's office. You don't have to believe that they can see your bones and your organs. Here's the picture, Jack. It's, this is the picture. It's real. Yeah. But the, the reality of children being able to engage themselves within themselves at a very early age to me is offers an opportunity for change a change in in the, in society societal change yeah it's, it's a so, good thing for the future for sure yeah yeah i mean especially when we're looking at what we're looking at right now exactly i, I have to ask you something sure um you're a storyteller and you've done it through very impactful films over the years and those stories have an effect on people and who, you know, after watching it, they go back to their lives and something remains. So I have to say that in Blue Velvet, Dennis Hopper scared the living bejesus out of me. Okay. He, I mean, it was riveting. I mean, I don't know. I mean... Dennis was a wasn't he a pretty enlightened guy too? He was an artist and so on, wasn't he? Dennis, <laughs> one of a kind, really super smart. He was an artist, 
but he also had a lot of torment inside. Mm. And so it was like all of us, you know, there are things swimming in us that got to be dealt with one way or another. And, you know, Dennis went way, 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 way far out on drugs and alcohol and was found running naked in, you know, down in New Mexico, pushed his fist through walls and mm. finally checked himself into Studio 12 here and got, you know, went on the on the wagon. And then he was, the, when I worked with him, he was been clean and sober for a, at least a year, maybe two. Uh-huh. And I didn't know uh, that. he was fantastic. But really? Dennis was, he is the only one that could play Frank Booth. He, more, I would say, was born out of this certain 1950s bad guy. In the 1950s, bad guy, super tough, twisted, but they could cry. Hmm. And the bad guys later on, if they don't cry, they hmm. probably do, but you never would see it because it's not it's too not tough enough. Yeah. But in the 50s, bad guy could cry. And this was so beautiful. Dennis is this guy. Dennis is, was so great. Mm. And uh, if we're talking about this film, we have to talk about Isabella Rossellini as well. How did she manage to go through what she went through? I mean, I have to believe when she went home at night, there was a tremendous amount of trauma. I think you're right. <laughs> um, so, um, you know... She was, you know, a Lancome, you know, supermodel. Yeah. And she was doing things that, you know, the Lancome supermodel, you know, doesn't do. And so I think it was, I think it's something definitely she wanted to do, but I think she paid a price for it. And bless her heart. Uh, I love her so much, and uh, but whatever wounds you know she got, I think they've healed up now, and she's really happy she did the film. Hmm. So it was cathartic for her, might have been. I don't, I won't speak for her, but uh -huh. I think she's as much as said that in a way, yeah. Hmm. That's amazing, you know. I saw I saw you. David does the. I don't know if you're still doing it, David, on YouTube. The weather report. Yeah, I'm like a huge weather fan. I go. I can't believe he's doing the weather report. <laughs> it's so great, David. And <laughs> and you are a extra for the movies that you have made. Some fairly dark, shall we say? You are an extraordinarily optimistic man. Where's that? How does that all? come into play I think I always was on the optimistic side and I always was um, creative but 
I know for a fact that I also had tons of torment, anger, doubt, mm. low self-assuredness, uh, and so much that I could have been easily trampled and run over, like for the giant, you know, tank in the uh, war, just just run right over and squashed from this business. And um, meditation, transcending every day, TM, has, it saved me in so many different cases. Um, it's, it's, it's such a friend to work and life. Uh, and mm. it's helped me, uh, you know, tremendously. That's mm. beautiful. I, and I know in these times, which are especially difficult, and of course we look back in history, this is not extraordinary by any means, but it's still here now. And uh, I, you know, I, I, th I agree with you on something else I thought I heard, read or heard you say, um, that uh, bleak times are necessary in order for us to transform. Is that reasonable? No, I don't know about that. I think um, getting more consciousness is what you need to transform. You don't need to suffer. In fact, they say, Maharishi said, mankind was not made to suffer. Bliss is our nature. Hmm. We are supposed to be happy. Now, maybe you, you know the, an, Anandamoy Ma. Um, Met her, actually. Yeah, she uh, was, um, you know, would sometimes go around nude, you know, and the reporters would say, um, aren't you embarrassed to be going around naked, you know, with these men around? And she said, I see no men. And meaning if you're not enlightened, in her mind, you weren't a real man. <laughs> Enlightenment is the thing. And uh, so uh, I forget my train of thought now, but... Um, Just about I, the, yeah, bleakness. It's, it's, you it's, don't have to suffer. Yeah. In fact, suffering is, is an indication that you have a long way to go. And and I think it's it's you know you go away from suffering by building up this consciousness. And I say also it's like this happiness is like a flak jacket. The things that used to almost kill you can't hurt you so much anymore. Hmm. And I think in enlightenment, I've heard there's no fear. All fear is gone. Imagine mm -hmm. you you can't be you can't be. There's nothing to be afraid of. Yeah, all yeah. is perfect. You're home free. Total liberation. A state described as more than the most. Nothing ever can hurt you again. Mm -hmm. You're immortal. You're home free. Something to really getting going home. It's something to aspire to for all of us. I would say, though, uh, suffering will go on. We are humans. That is part of, of life. But I think that the more that we enter into the, the true self part by virtue of the transcendence you're talking about through meditation, then we become less um, enamored 
by this suffering. In other words, many of us really pile it on to ourselves when something goes wrong. And I think the, the, the power of meditation and mindfulness, I would include that, is that we are not going to react the way that we have typically reacted through our habitual patterns in our life. So it's not that it goes away, it's that it, it's, it mutates so that you are not caught in it the way that you normally would have been. It's a, I was just saying, you know, it's like a flak jacket. The more consciousness you have, the more happiness you have. Yeah. The suffering is there. I always say the events of our life may stay the same, but the lows won't be as low yeah. and the highs will then be enjoyed more. So it's not like everything's going to be roses for you. We put many things in motion. You know, what you sow is what you reap. And so who knows what we've done in the past? Doesn't matter. How we go through our events will certainly be better if we're transcending and bringing in the gold and getting rid of the garbage. Life will be better. Hmm. Well, thank you for this chat, David. It's been fantastic it's getting been to know you a little bit. It's been great seeing you, Raghu, and meeting you. Yes, thank you. Are you got something up? Or, uh, films? or uh, What's going on? I mean, no, I'm working on painting right now and sculpture. Oh, you are? Oh, yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. God bless. Thank God you bless so you, much. Matthew. Thank you so much. And uh, in the show notes, everybody, go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash MindRolling. And in those show notes, there'll be a link to the foundation and I'm sure there's ways for one to participate and become more aware uh, of what uh, David's work is in Maharishi, Transcendental Meditation. And we shall see you all next time on Mind Rolling. And thank you, Dave. All the best. 